Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This week is Parsha and we're going to continue learning the meat after dairy, and this is part four. So now we're going to learn about <clears throat> how to keep fleshig, meat, and dairy milk sufficiently separate. So number one, if, <clears throat> if bread was on the table during a fleshig meal or during a dairy meal, it can't be used for the other kind of meal. Now this refers to bread which has been sliced or cut up, like in the case of challah. But if it's still a large loaf, or even a half a loaf, which needs to be sliced, something larger than you typically would just eat as is, it wouldn't have this limitation. And the reason is because once bread is sliced into smaller pieces and is on the table during a dairy or meat meal, we aren't careful to keep it parva and to make sure nothing flesh, sugar, milk gets on it because it's meant to be eaten with that meal. And Chazal were worried that it might have some grease, which is dairy or meat, on it, and therefore it can't be used for the other kind of meal. Now let's clarify. It certainly won't make you fleshig if you eat it. That's not the issue. The issue is to eat it actually together. You can't eat this bread and put cheese on it if it was used by a meat meal, or you can't use the bread that was by this milchig meal and put a deli on it. You can't have them together. That's what they didn't want because it might have actual meat grease or dairy grease on it. And you certainly can't make it milchig or fleshig if it in itself. For example, if you had leftover challah from a fleshig suda, you can't then use that challah and make French toast out of it and, you know, that has generally has milk in the ingredients. So I would be actually putting milk into it. So you certainly can't do that. But a larger loaf or half loaf of bread or challah, we are careful, careful, I'm sorry, to keep it parv. And even if someone went out of their way to ensure that cut bread remains parv, Chazal didn't rely on that. The only thing that would work is either if it's a large loaf or if the bread was removed from the table once the meat or dairy was put on the table. One other point I want to mention while we're on the topic is that if you heat up challah, by putting it directly onto a crock pot. So, you know, you have a crock pot with chalent and you put the challah directly on top of it without having, like, silver foil under it or having a silver foil tray on anything. It's directly sitting on top of the crock pot. Then that bread also becomes fleshy. And that's a whole, that's a different discussion. But that actually becomes fleshy and, again, can't be used together with milchik. So now that's the story with bread, and that's the story with challah. But the question is, though, what about other foods on the table, like salads? Can they be used for another kind of meal, from meat to dairy or vice versa? So the bread is touched with the hands, so Chazal was worried about that. But salads and similar kind of foods are generally only eaten with forks and spoons and presumably have a dedicated fork or spoon, one hopes, and therefore they stay parav even though they were served with a fleshig meal or milchig meal. But what if you have cut vegetables on the table, which are meant to be accessed by hand, or another food item that is meant to be taken by hand, a finger food? So according to some paiskim, it would have the same status as bread, and if it was on a dairy meal, it shouldn't be then used for a fleshig, and if it was on a meat meal, it shouldn't be used for dairy. If you have like a personal salad, which you use the same fork that you ate the meat or dairy with, there too, it shouldn't be used afterwards for the other kind of meal. It needs to be marked accordingly if you use the same fork. 
Darach HaShulchan suggests this all as mitzvah min HaMuvchar, and he writes that this is the minig of Rav Tzutz Yisrael, meaning that most of Kali Yisrael are careful with things like this. So that means it isn't strictly usher, but it's something, it's something a person should be careful with. But again, a salad that has its own dedicated fork, and it's eaten that way, and you don't eat it with your hands, then you don't, that's fine. You can switch it from Mochik to Flesh again, it's not a problem. Another halacha is that the tablecloth or placemat used for dairy or meat can't be used for the other thing, right? So if you use it for dairy, it can't be used for meat or vice versa, unless you wash it or wipe it down if it's vinyl, right? So you can't have the same tablecloth for both. If it's a larger tablecloth and you ate meat on one side and you want to eat milk on the other side, that's permitted. If two people are eating at one time, then there's another halacha called a hecker. You have to have something dividing them, and we'll address that in a a future shir. Another halacha, which is interesting, that is discussed by the Ramah, is that a dairy knife can't be used to cut meat, nor can a fleshig knife used to cut dairy, even cold. And he says that even though the knife is clean, that's not sufficient. The Ramah requires something called Ne'itza Bekarka, which means sticking it into hard earth ten times to clean it. And the modern-day equivalent of that would be washing with steel wool and soap, something very abrasive. So if you actually cut cheese with a meat knife, and that meat knife hasn't been cleaned with this fashion with steel wool, you would be required to shave off a thin slice of the cheese where it was cut. Now, that's an unusual thing. Most people wouldn't use a meat knife to cut cheese, or a milking knife to cut meat, right? That's, that's typically, people will stay away from that. But the interesting question is, does this stringency, and this is a machoikis, does this stringency apply to parva food as well? Meaning, let's say you want to cut a tomato, and you want to use that tomato for a cheese sandwich, and the only sharp knife available happens to be a clean fleshig knife. Are you allowed to use a clean fleshig knife to cut a tomato that you're going to put into a cheese sandwich. Can you use a clean milchiga knife to cut a tomato to put in a deli sandwich? According to a number of Paiskim here, too, it's not permitted unless the knife has been cleaned with steel wool. Now, in this case, after the fact, we wouldn't require you to trim off a slice of the tomato because Bidi Abbott will rely that the simple cleaning is sufficient. But what I'm really discussing here is l'chachila. This is the situation I'm discussing. You, you have a dilemma. You want you have the tomato, you need to cut it. And there is a power of knife, but it's dirty. And you have a clean meat knife, and you want to be lazy. You don't want to wash the power of a knife. You'd rather use a clean meat knife and then put it in your cheese sandwich. So is that okay? And the answer is no, it's not. You should be machmer. And that is the meaning. So be careful about using the wrong gender of utensils between meat and milk, even if you're just cutting something power. Now, of course, if you're stuck, you're on the road, and that's the only knife you have, you brought then you can be lenient. If you did it already, you can be lenient. But l'chadchila, that's the way you should be nighting. You should clean the knife and use the correct knife. There is another twist to this halacha regarding switching over utensils. If you are, if you have, I'm sorry, a par of salad, which you want to serve by a fleshig meal. Okay, so you have a par of salad, regular salad, and you want to serve it by a fleshig meal. And the only serving bowl you have is a dairy bowl. And that would be permitted, even though most people wouldn't do that. But you are allowed to do that because it's not like cutting the tomato with a dairy knife to serve with meat because a bowl doesn't have the same stringency as a knife. It doesn't get as dirty as a knife. 
and like it doesn't have a buildup of dirt the way a knife could have. And simple, simple washing and cleaning is sufficient. Now, if you actually want it to do, that's when you want to put a power of salad into a dairy bowl. But what if you want to actually put a meat salad into a dairy bowl? And, and really, you know where this always comes up is where you have a par, you have a fleshig, um, uh, utensil with like a, uh, a power utensil. You have a mixer, you have a hand blender, all those kind of things. And one of the, you have only one, and it's either fleshig or it's milchig, and now you want to use it for the other kind. And it's cold, and everything is cold. So that's worse. When you're using something that's actually fleshig for something that's actually milchig, or something that's actually milchig for something that's actually fleshig, even though it's cold, Chazal say don't do that because you're going to get confused. You're going to use it when it's hot. It's not that's, that that they, they prohibit. They say if it's in once in a while, once in a you know an, an unusual situation that you're doing that, like an example would be for Shavuos, you're going to use your mixer for something milchig. So it's a one-time occurrence that they allow because it's unique and it's unusual. But on a regular basis, you can't use the wrong kind of utensil for the other thing, uh, milchig to fleshig, fleshig to milchig, even if it's not a knife, because Chazal worried you're going to mix it up. So when it comes to knives, you shouldn't use it at all. It needs to be cleaned with steel wool were you to use it for the other thing. And even for parav, you shouldn't cut a parav thing that you're going to eat with meat with a dairy knife, or you shouldn't cut a, uh, a parav thing with a meat knife, or you can eat it with dairy, you're stuck, you don't have another knife, uh, you did it already, that's not a problem. And switching over utensils is the same kind of story that it sh- even for cold, it should not be done. One last interesting thing, the Ruma writes that all of Klal already has an established minig to have two knives, one dairy and one meat, and it seems that arbitrarily they chose that the simon should be made, the mark should be done on the dairy knife. Now, nowadays, people usually have two very different kinds of knives for dairy and, and meat, like uh, different colors, different design. So then, essentially, they both have simon. But in those days, the knives were all the same, and they just would make a mark. And the mark, interestingly, would be made on the dairy knife. That's what the Ramah speaks at. Moving on to Parshas Kairach. So we are all familiar with the story of Parshas Kairach, but there is backstory to Parshas Kairach. And the backstory is there are two women behind this Parsha. Two women that aren't mentioned in the Psukim, but they're mentioned by Chazal. The parasha tells us the story of Kairach, who assembled a crowd of tzaddikim. 250 of them were heads of Sanhedrin, and he fomented a rebellion. Among those named, actually named, was Ein ben Peles, and he was part of Shevet Ruben, and he joined Kairach. However, when the time comes, and they're either swallowed by the earth or warmed up, Ein is mysteriously missing. He's not mentioned. Chazal take note of this, and they reveal to us a secret. There's a backstory here. And there's a backstory to a rebellion, and Owen's disappearing from the text. Ein ben Palace's disappearing has a reason. And when we probe deeper into Chazal and other sources, it turns out that there's a backstory to the backstory. And in other sources, we'll see that there's an epilogue to the story as well. So it revolves around the wives of Kairach and Ein ben Pelas, both of which uh, were not given their name, but they're known as Eishas Kairach and Eishas Ein ben Pelas. Chazal invoke a Pasuk in Mishle, this. The Pasuk is Chachmas Nashim Bansubesa Ve'ivelas Ve'yada Taharsana. The wisdom of women built her house. Chachmas Nashim Bansubesa Ve'ivelas means a foolish woman. Ve'yada Taharsana destroys it with her own hands. The first part of the Pasuk Chazal say is referring to the wife of Ein ben Pelas. And the second part is referring to the wife of Kairach. 
So the Gemara explains, Rav said, Ayn ben Palace was saved by his wife. She said to him, what are you getting involved in this fight for? What does it matter to you? Whether the one, Moshe, remains the master or the other, Kairach, becomes the master, you, you'll always remain just a follower. So he apparently, it seems he bought into this. It's a, this is like, I guess, a, a, a flash. A flash of the obvious. And he replied, but what can I do? I've already taken part of their counsel and they have sworn me to be with them. I made a Shavua. I swore to be a part of them. So she said, I know that they're all a holy community, as it is written, Kal ha'eda kulum kedashim. So she continues, stay here, and I'll save you. What did she do? She gave him wine to drink. She intoxicated him, and he lay, she, he lay down within the tent and fell asleep. Then she sat down of the entrance of the tent and loosened her hair. Uh, basically took off her, her shaitl, took off her snood. And whoever came to summon her, whoever came, I'm sorry, to summon him, Ayn Palace, saw her and retreated. So this way she saved Ayn Ben Palace and she saved his wife. Meanwhile, on the other hand, Kairach's wife, Chazal say, she incited him to create the rebellion. She said to him, look what Moshe has done. He has made himself king. His brother, he appointed the high priest. Kain Gadol, his brother's sons, he made the Sagan Kaihanim Gedalim. If Truma is brought, he decrees, let it be for the Kayan. If uh, Meiser is brought, he says, he tells the Levium, you have to give a tenth of it to a Kayan. And moreover, and this is uh, referring to what happened in Pasha's Bahalischa, where the Levium were initiated into Avedis Hashem, he had all their hair cut off, and he is making fun of you, he's, he's mocking you as though you were dirt, because he's jealous of your hair. That's what she said, according to Chazal. So Kaira said to her, he had a very, very good argument, a very counter-argument to this. He said, what do you mean? He, he did the same thing to himself. Maishra Ben also underwent, Maishra Ben was a levy, he also underwent the same process. He had all his hair cut off, and he got lifted up, and so on and so forth. So she replied, well, Maishra Ben, he has everything anyway. He's the king, right? So he had this concept, which a Quotes the Pasuk, Thomas Nafshi and Plishtim, it's worthwhile for me to get uh, humiliated with them so that they all get humiliated and I'll be above them. This is what she said, and she incited him to, to, uh, to start the rebellion. Fascinating. So here you have two women, Ayn Ben Palas, and uh, you have two men, Ayn Ben Palas and Kairach. Ayn Ben Palas was on, together with Kairach, signed in on this. And his wife got him out of it. And then you have Karach's wife, who got him into it. So we need to understand a little bit what's going on over here. So we have the backstory. We have this two women behind this. But what, what was up with Karach's wife? Why did she encourage him to re- rebel? Why did she work out this whole argument to enrage him, to arouse his jealousy, and even refute his very logical comeback, that, that Moshe himself endured the embarrassment and loss of power that he imposed upon the rest of the Levine? Why Why would she have done that? What was her motivation? So there's a backstory to the backstory, and it's a fascinating Maramakim. It's an Arachayim, apparently, even though I haven't found it, but numerous Svarim quote this. There's an amazing addition to this story. He writes that Chazal tell us Karach was of the wealthiest people who ever lived. His wife was adorned with all the jewels, precious metal, clothing a woman could possibly dream of. And she had a following. She had a following of women who looked up to her. And she rid- ridiculed Sapira 
Moshe's wife, and said to her, Look what kind of life my husband has provided for me, and look what kind of life your husband made for you. Tzipara was adorned very simply. So Tzipara ignored her, saying, My husband provided the whole Kali Yisrael with the Tyra, and it's called by his name, Tyra's Moshe. Fine. So that was their initial interaction. But then, Mahashem commanded Moshe Rabbeinu to build the second Luchos. And he told Moshe Rabbeinu to take the remaining stone chips for himself. Now, the stones that the Luchos were made of were not just any kind of stone. They were the most precious stone on earth. And others say it wasn't even from the earth. It was from Ganeiden. The name of the stone was Sanperinen. Moshe didn't recognize their value, and he took all these stone chips, and he gave them to Tzipira. But he told her, bring them to Ahaliyav, and he would know what to do with them. Ahaliyav recognized them for their worth, for their true worth, and he was astounded and awed by their beauty and value. And Moshe Rabbeinu became very wealthy from this. And he fashioned either a bracelet or a ring from the stones, which Tzipira began to wear. Now all the women followed Tzipira to see her otherworldly bracelets, Moshe had become the richest man alive. The wife of Karach was crestfallen and inflamed and complained to her husband that he had not provided anything for her. This is all from the Harachai. Amazing. Amazing, amazing. So Rashi explains to us in the parasha, and this we're familiar with, that Karach, even though when he makes his claim to Moshe Rabbeinu in the parasha, he seems to have holy justifications to rebel. He wants to become the kind God. He wants to be able to serve Hashem. We're all in this together. But Rashi says, and he brings from Chazal, that in truth, the real, real, real motivation, he was fueled by a common jealousy, by Kina, of Eli Tzafin, who was appointed as the Nasi of the Shevet, the head of the Shevet, instead of him. So Chazal went all the way down to the depth of it, and they said there was some kind of iota of jealousy, and everything came from that. And now we see that Chazal has made the addition that his wife that prodded him into it, she was also motivated by common jealousy as well. And, of course, the, the, the lesson here is very straightforward, how, how important it is for us to always examine, re-examine, seek counsel just to make sure that our intentions, where they really come from, what's the real motivation here, what is really, really spurring us on to act, even though we seem to think that you know, we have all kinds of justifications. Here, Chazal say, both him and his wife, the source of jealousy. Now, let's move on to Ayman Palace's wife. Ayman Palace's wife, she saved him. And Chachmas Adam Nasha, she saved him using Chachma. And the Chachma was that she made an argument to him, you're equal, you're just like, going to be the same either way, you're not going to win here. And the question is like, why wouldn't he have thought of that? You know, okay, it seems like a simple argument. And I, I, I was thinking that perhaps the, that's, is true. She made that point to him, but I don't even know if he accepted that point. It could be he realized already that he should be drawing out. I think the Chachmas Nashim here is demonstrated by another Medrash. It's a lesser-known Medrash. And the Medrash says the story a little bit, it goes a little further in the story. When the earth opened up to swallow Karach's company, the bed on which Ayn was still sleeping began to rock and to roll towards the opening in the earth. Because that's what happened. The earth opened and everybody got swallowed. It sucked in everybody that was part of it. Ayn's wife seized the bed and she said, my, my husband made a shavuot to me, never again to take part in Machaikis. And you are Nitzchias, you live and endure for all eternity, you can punish him if he ever violates that vow. 
So Hashem listened to her, and Ayn was saved. Now, after the whole thing was done and the dust settled, she asked Ayn to go to Moshe because he had to ask Mechila. He had rebelled against Moshe Rabbeinu, but he refused. He was ashamed to look into Moshe's face after he had rebelled against him. So she went to Moshe in his stead. Moshe Rabbeinu accompanied her to her house, and at the entrance of which he cried out, Ayn ben Palas, step forward, Hashem will forgive you of your Averis. And it was reference to this that he spent his life doing tshuva. And he was called Ayn, which means the penitent person, the person doing tshuva. He was misayinen, he was sad, and Palas, there was a miracle. And listen to this, you know what his true name was according to the Medrash? Nemuel ben Aliyah, he was a brother of Dasan and Avira. That is how closely involved in this rebellion he was. He was brother number three of Dasan and Avira. And he was pulled out by his wife. So what was the Chachma? I think, judging from this matter, the Chachma was that he told her, he, she made her argument to him, what are you gaining over here? You're, you're in this either way. You're not going to win either way. You're going to be the follower. And he agreed with her, but he told her, I'm part of them. I'm sworn to them. It's too late for me to pull out. I'm, I'm, I'm finished. I'm, I'm a done deal already. I'm not going to be forgiven anyway. How could I pull out of this? That was the Chachmas Nashim Ben Sabesa. She told him, don't give up. She built him up. She said, we're going to get you out of this and we're going to find you a way to do tshuva. And she, ah, that is exactly what she did. She made him swear that he's never going to take part of Machlekes. She put him to sleep. She got him out of the situation through you know, her ingenious plot that she uncovered her here and they left. And then Hashem wasn't ready to accept him. And she was about to swallow him up, and she argued with Hashem as well. She protected her husband. And she said, he made a shavuah, and you can collect it from him anytime he breaks it. And Hashem listened. And then she still didn't want to do tshuva. He wasn't ready to go to Moshe Rabbeinu, and she went instead of him and brought Moshe to him and eventually got him to do tshuva. That was Chachmas Nashem Bantabesa. She built him. He was broken. That's why he didn't want to turn around. Of course, he understood that I have nothing to gain here. Eventually, it hit him, but it was too late. They were too sunk into the machalikas already. He couldn't pull out. She pulled him out. Now listen to the epilogue. The, there's a sefer of the Ramami Panu, an early Makubal, and he writes about a lot of Gulgulim. And he writes that, in last week's Haftarah, talks about the mother of Shimshain, who was Eishas Menayach. It doesn't say her name either. Eishas Menayach, her husband's name was Menayach, and she was Eishas Menayach. She was Shimshain Hagibar's mother. And in the parasha, the Haftarah, that says that a malach appeared to her, and the malach notified her, not, not Manayach, notified her that she was ha- going to have a child, she had been barren, and the child's going to be Shimshin, and he should not drink wine, he's going to be a nazir, he should not drink wine, and she should not cut his hair. Manayach heard about it, and he asked that the malach should come back again, and Hashem sent the malach again, but not to him again, to her again. Because she was the one who really had this mitzvah to raise Shimshin and to raise him as a Nazir. She, according to the Ramami Panu, was a Gilgal of Ayn bin Palace's wife. And fascinating point, this is pointed out by, the, by Diane Weiss, he says, the two things she used to save Ayn bin Palace's life was wine, she made him drink, and her hair. And now Hashem gave her the ability in another life to be Mikadashem Shemaim through her son, who was a Nazar and didn't drink wine, and who was another Nazar and didn't cut his hair, and he was Mikadashem Shemaim to be a, a, a Shepherd of Kal Yisrael, famous 
over everything that Shimshon did to save Kal Yisrael, this was her piece of nitchiyas, her piece of etern- eternal reward for what she did to save Ayman Palace's life. Have a, a good night and a good Shabbos.